Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us David Shire's score to the 1974 surveillance mystery drama, The Conversation. The Conversation was written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Andy, tell us about The Conversation. The Conversation is half a thriller, half a character study about Harry Call, a surveillance expert in San Francisco who does an eavesdropping job that draws him into a mystery. The lead role of Harry Call is played by Gene Hackman. The film also stars John Cazale as one of his assistants on that job, Cindy Williams as one of the targets of his eavesdropping recording, Terry Garr as his mistress Amy, Harrison Ford as the assistant to the guy who hired him to make the recording, and should I even mention that the guy who hired him to make the recording turns out to be an uncredited Robert Duvall. So the movie starts with the scene of this eavesdropping job, where the two people are walking through a noisy crowd and have to be secretly recorded. A very complicated task for a surveillance expert, and Harry prides himself on a job well done and claims not to take any interest in what they were talking about, what the conversation was about. But as the movie progresses, he finds himself wondering what he might have gotten himself involved in, what he might end up being responsible for as a result, and maybe who he really is. Hmm. Good enough? Good enough? Good enough. Good enough. Good enough. Good enough. If we could do that distortion effect to your voice that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into this. John, you said you hadn't seen this. Mm -hmm. Now I want to hear from you. What'd you think? It's a great movie. This is a terrific movie that I really enjoyed. I just want to put out a quick caveat. Word to the wise here. If you haven't watched this movie and you're going to watch it, if you're having an issue with your stereo receiver that you're going to play the movie over, make sure you have it sorted out before you play the movie. You should not watch the beginning of this movie... (laughs) while having any doubt in your mind about what kind of digital artifacts might come over your speakers. I'm sorry to hear that this was an issue. Because if you do, you'll drive yourself crazy. (laughs) Did you get that sorted out quickly enough? I hope so. I had been paranoid that my speakers were acting up, and then I started watching this movie, and it starts going like this. And I, (laughs) I didn't know what the hell was going on. I satisfied myself soon enough that that is what's happening in the movie, and then it became very clear that that is what we're supposed to be hearing. So then I was able to process it correctly. But just make sure you know that it's not your speakers. All right. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. Anyway, Uh the movie, you thought it was good. It was so good. I'm glad.
I imagined you thinking it was good, but then I thought I might be getting this wrong. And if he doesn't like it, I don't know if I can defend it. If you had come at this with a kind of, well, the mystery doesn't quite make sense and it's not satisfying, I wouldn't have been able to defend it. So I'm glad that's not how it hit you. Well, you come up with a lot of scenarios in which I don't like things that I'm obviously going to like. It wasn't so obvious to me because it feigns to being a mystery with clues and an answer and all that, but... It's loose. It's sort of an art fairy tale of a mystery. And, you know, we could argue about what does or doesn't happen and why it's not really that kind of a movie. So I'm glad you went with it. Well, I appreciate that aspect of the movie, that there is ambiguity about what exactly happened towards the end and what might be in his head and what might be, yes, as you say, sort of a fairy tale of the idea of a mystery. And I had fun batting that around in my head, but I still think also at the end of the day, I am pretty sure what the real story is, I think. I think we're supposed to know what happens, right? Yeah, I think more or less we can know what happens. Should we say it right now? Oh, no, we probably shouldn't say it right now. But we will end up saying it. So here's your standard spoiler warning. This is going to be a spoilery show. This is a movie susceptible to spoilage. So uh, mm-hmm. if you've always wanted to see the conversation, might as well see the conversation instead of listening to this. Then listen to this afterward. Yeah. Okay. Andy, can you think of a category among all of the movies that we've done on this show that this movie fits into that there are two previous entries that also fit that category? Uh... I mean, we've only had one Coppola movie. Uh-huh. It's not that. Right. We've had one movie before with Terry Garr in it. That's right. Her next movie she made but months later. That's right. Young Frankenstein. You've already mentioned it. I don't need to make a whole puzzle out of it, but this is our third San Francisco movie. Yeah, that's right. After Vertigo and Bullet. Uh-huh. And again, I uh, I got a kick out of it because I've been all those places in San Francisco. You know, I thought of Bullet. I thought of Bullet while I was watching this. You did? Because it has a similarity in that the focus of the movie and maybe the focus of the music is on a character who might be a little lonelier and more detached than he realizes. Hmm. And the music is kind of playing around the edges of that. It sort of had some overlap, I thought, in the what do things feel like from within this lonely mind kind of spirit? And I wondered if there was maybe an indirect line of inspiration there, but not a strong one, obviously. But yeah, I have myself walked through Union Square, the site of that first scene of the movie where the conversation takes place. Mm-hmm. Are there still mimes? <laughs> I didn't see a mime. I honestly was jealous of the buskers that the people in the square got to hear in the beginning of this movie. Well, I would put money in their hat for sure. That's a good act. Yeah, Cindy Williams asks for some quarters to them? I'd put a bill in there. Well, it's in 1974 months. Or I think the conversation takes place in December of 1972. That's a good little group. It's like a little Dixieland group. They've got a trumpet and a sax and a clarinet, a drum kit and a guitar. And there's a singer. Sounds good. So like the opening shot of the movie, I guess I'm sort of starting by slowly, slowly zooming in on the action, what we're going to be talking about here. It's this really impressive long take from a high overhead position that zooms in and in and in. We're hearing all of the sounds that are just wafting up out of the square, including this band, including all the people. And then, yeah, we focus in on this mime who is walking around and imitating various people as they walk. Gene Hackman walks through the frame, mime, like, imitates him for a second, and... 
this is all one continuous long push in. And so like that shot, I guess I had an idea of starting by thinking about this music that's playing, which is the first sound that you hear in the movie. We said at the tail end of last episode, when we were talking about having this movie coming up, we said, well, it's an all piano score. It's a piano solo score. And after watching it, I don't think I would defend that position anymore. I think you have to kind of allow for the incorporation of all of these extraneous source elements of music. I kind of feel it all as part of a tapestry of sounds that really is the score. And then not to mention the electronic manipulation that happens to the piano itself. But I think the whole thing, all of this musical information in the movie is kind of part of what we're here to talk about. All right. I guess I don't disagree, but I also don't feel that there's a misrepresentation if you say that it's a piano score, because the piano has a privileged role in what we hear. Of course, but all of the music that we hear in the movie is very, very carefully chosen and placed and mixed. And maybe we should mention up top the master sound editor who had such a crucial role to play in assembling all of that, Walter Murch. Yeah, Walter Murch is the editor of this movie as well as the sound editor. And when I was watching this time, I thought, wow, it's so well edited. This movie is such a, yeah. a work of editing. And that absolutely encompasses the score. And I've seen David Shire saying credit needs to be given to Walter Murch for a lot of the effect of the score. How it's mixed, how it's manipulated, where it appears he made some choices and changed what Shire had intended. And I think probably just the movie as a whole is sort of like Francis Ford Coppola and Walter Murch made this movie what it is. Yeah, agreed. And that's apparent from the first second of the movie. I don't think there's an accident to be found in anything that you hear. The first sound at all that you hear is, in fact, this wailing clarinet line, which is part of the improvisation that this busker in the park in the square is playing in the band. But that's like the first thing that catches your ears. And if you just isolate that, it sounds a little bit like a siren. It sounds like some of the shrieking synthetic noises that are to come. And then maybe you'll think that this is looking a little too hard, but you know, This movie, as we're going to talk about, is all about assembling a representation of reality by using multiple perspectives, multiple recordings, layers of sound. You know, so much of the import of what we're thinking about has to do with superimposition, right? Things going on top of each other. Yeah, sure. There's editing that happens on screen. His job, he sort of is an editor. Yeah. Part of the beautiful thing about the movie is that it's subject matter and it's method, it's construction, and the rhythms of it sort of all connect. Anything about audio recording becomes part of the message of the movie. Yeah. And crucially, the idea of there being multiple versions of things is important to the movie. And I think that this is a conscious choice to have this music playing as our entry point in it because it's a Dixieland band. And, you know, this New Orleans style of jazz playing that is characterized by the different soloists, the horn players, all improvising at the same time on top of each other. 
It's this kind of raucous way of having music fit together that derives from New Orleans funerals and traditions like that. So right away it confronts you with multiple things superimposed and layered on top of each other. Then when we go to the scene where Harry has recorded this, he's got three different microphones stationed at different places around the square. He's got a shotgun mic pointed down from a high building. He's got somebody following them with a concealed microphone in a shopping bag. And his job is to piece these things together he gets the tapes of these three different positions of recordings that he's got, and he lines them up, and then he sets them all playing at the same time. And what's the first thing you hear? These three tape players playing at the same time. It's these three Dixieland horns all playing at the same time. That's not a coincidence. These three tape players they're all soloing on top of each other, and it's Harry's job to gel them together, to coalesce them into a unified reality. Whether or not he can do that is at play the whole movie long. I mean, this is kind of interesting to me. Shire said in several interviews, you know, it's not clear where to draw the line between score and sound design in this movie, and mm -hmm. everything you're talking about here, I didn't even consider that we might talk about it any length because I didn't even think of that as part of the score. It's music that you hear. I don't think David Shire wrote that music. No, but he did write some of the jazz that we hear playing in the background in other scenes. He did. He wrote source music. I'm saying he acknowledged that the movie is all-encompassing about what's sound, what's music. Yeah, exactly. Everything you're saying sounds legitimate to me, but I'm also like, oh, I, <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> thinking about the Dixieland music because that to me was something else. But you're right, it's all, all one. So this is an example of music in which three disparate things happen on top of each other, but they do coalesce into the same piece of music. All of these guys are playing the same tune together and it sounds good, despite this feature of it that they're sort of all on top of each other at the same time. But that's in stark contrast to Harry Call plays the saxophone himself and what he likes to do is put on a jazz record in his apartment and play on top of it. Pretend that he's playing along with the band on the record. And he is not that great at this. <laughs> By design, you know, that's kind of part of his character is that he's pretty amateurish saxophone player. There's a stark divide between what he's playing and the record that he's listened to. They don't fit together as well as the players in the park. They don't fit together as well as his three tape players. There's, you know, many, many other examples of things on top of each other that we're left to sort of think about how well they fit together. Yeah, it is interesting. We often, we do these and it's sort of an inessential appendix. Oh, the composer also wrote some source music. And then here's this example where you're saying that the collage of all of these different elements is what makes the movie and the source and the score are, to you, of equal significance. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to, again, I don't want to argue about exact equivalency, but let's just say of significance. Yeah, all right. Like I'm talking about this jazz combo on the record he's playing to, this is written by David Shire. You know, and he got a jazz combo to play it. Like, this was part of his job of the music that he delivered for the picture, and he got great players to play it. Like, that's Ray Brown on bass in there, and Shelly Mann on drums, who is featured in The Man with the Golden Arm that we talked about. How about that? 
And he's got a couple of those tracks. I'll be honest, I used to think that these were just actual tracks. I didn't know that they were original to this movie. I thought David Shire had contributed the piano and that everything else was found recordings because they are very convincing. Yeah. To my ear, anyway. They don't sound like some kind of clever conversion of the materials of the score. The main theme is hiding in the records. They really sound like authentic uh, artifacts. And then some of the source music are old songs that Shire didn't write, but they're using his arrangements of them and mining them, I think, for little notes of similarity and evocation from one to the next. I mean, I think everything in this movie is considered just so to get you thinking about overlapping and uncertain realities. Yeah, I found out a lot about how much Shire contributed to this movie, including that, yes, he did the arrangements of the music that you hear in the background in the hotel lobby. Yeah. That he did all of this arranging work. Since you mentioned that, here's another one of these little moments of similarity that I'm convinced is not a coincidence. There is a shot of like an architectural model of Union Square, you know, which kind of mirrors the opening shot of the movie of real Union Square in San Francisco. We kind of zoom in on the model in a similar way. And yeah, it's David Shire's arrangement of a tune that I didn't know anything about called To Each His Own. But the first thing that you hear as it's playing is again this kind of high wailing clarinet. But now it's explicitly coming on, like you say, Muzak playing over the background, and it kind of has the effect of recalling the opening shot of the movie in this weirdly packaged, like little toy version of it. The reality that he has been trying to process has been like smoothed over and put plastic wrap over into, this is a possible reality, but maybe it's a misleading one. It's this little model. I hear that now that you say it, and uh, I probably four, at Amy some Frederick subconscious Street. level heard a, a connectedness among many sounds and scenes and musical snatches through the movie, but a lot of this stuff I didn't think to try to pick apart. All right. In fact, I came at this with what I said in the previous episode echoing in my head that I wanted to try to stay as true as I could to the actual impressions and values of things okay. before I got drawn into analyzing them. So some of this kind of you know investigative look at this uh, drew a connection. <laughs> I'm still maybe as a result of deliberate inertia. I don't know. But I... <laughs> restrained myself from doing too much over investigating so yeah that's interesting that you point out that out yes well i want to hear your authentic reactions too for sure and i guess i was inspired to cast my eye in this direction in these little investigative corners of things mirroring other things i think that's the mood the movie put me in i mean i started thinking of these things right away it's not i didn't like go digging to have these thoughts but i i will say that one thing that i did notice on a subsequent viewing that confirms my suspicion that this is all planned and intentional and not accidental is during that same scene in the hotel lobby a guy with a saxophone with a tenor saxophone wearing a tuxedo just walks across the frame i did notice that guy yeah. he's carrying not only a tenor saxophone which is the same kind of horn that harry plays and that the guy in the park is playing but he's also got a stand a little tripod stand for the saxophone to sit on on the floor, which also echoes the way that Harry's saxophone is sitting on the floor of his apartment. It's like these various elements of where we've seen things before are kind of getting deconstructed and arrayed past the camera in evocative ways. Like Coppola didn't do that by accident. 
I have no doubt that this movie was made with an eye for artistic doublings, echoes, mirrorings, as much as they could. It serves the spirit of the movie and of the movie making. Mm -hmm. I was content even on a podcast prep journey. I was content to let a lot of that be the character of this movie. It's about, as Coppola says in his commentary track and interviews about this movie, he wrote this script when he was a student. He wanted to make these kind of artistically ambitious personal films, but he couldn't get funding for it. But then after he made The Godfather, now Paramount pictures wanted to keep him in their good graces and make him happy enough to make Godfather 2 so they they made it possible for him to make this the kind of movie he'd always wanted to make so he wanted to try pursuing high artistic ambitions and he said the formal concept that appealed to him that was interesting to him was to try to make a movie based around repetition where you would hear or see the same things Mm -hmm. repeatedly but their meanings and significances would shift as the context shifted you see that not just in the subject of the movie, which is this one conversation that's recorded at the beginning and then played many, many times as his relationship to it changes over the course of the movie, but also everything else about the editing, as you're saying. Elements of everything repeat deliberately. And yes. It's a formal idea and a thematic idea, and it absolutely extends to the sound design and the music design, as it were. But I still very sincerely feel like we haven't talked about the score <laughs> as I conceive it. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, you're right. It- if you had asked me, and I suspect most people, about the score to the conversation, they would have thought of this piano theme. Yes. And that's what I've been thinking about for the last few days. <laughs> no, I have too, of course. Of course, this is the score. This is the musical interpretive contribution that Shire made. And it absolutely is, I think, meant to stand apart from all of these other sound sources that I've been talking about, all of these source music tracks. Coppola told Shire that he wanted just a piano because he wanted it to feel lonely like Harry Call is, that he wanted to contrast that with the world around him. So yes, now that I've spent all this time talking about the world around him, let's talk about the particular perspective and character that this piano contributes to the movie and to this character. You know, I saw in the analyses about this that I read and the interview material from the creators that there are official lines about what the theme is for and what it was supposed to contribute to the movie. And before touching on that, I want to try to talk about what it meant to me in itself. Please. Because I don't think the way it lands for me is quite the same as what they intended for it to be. And that's okay. And I, I don't think that I differ with them exactly, but I, what you build isn't quite the same thing as what you get. And I hmm. feel like what we got, it has some character that I don't know if they built it intentionally, but... I love this score. I find it very moving. I find it very moving that the way it moves me has been applied to this movie, which is, as you've been saying, such a kind of brainy construction and an investigation in itself. And yet it has this slow-moving, nostalgic, melancholy Mm -hmm. presence in it, this sad, soft-spoken element. Mm -hmm. Something about the combination of that musical voice and all of this clue finding and connection making and all of the kind of technical business of it. It's very touching in itself, the juxtaposition and 
that juxtaposition to me is thematically sort of at the core of what the character study of the movie is about mm -hmm. Harry Call's outlook and how his internal life works. So the first scene of the movie is this whole sequence of the actual job of recording the conversation. Various things happen. They walk around and around. The guys recording it, you know, have various challenges that they have to overcome as they're going along. And then the job is over and the conversation stops. And it's only now that the piano score enters as Gene Hackman is leaving the van where the guys are stationed walking through the streets of San Francisco, walking back to his apartment. It's just this very lonely, regular guy walking around kind of feeling. Is that what, so this is what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Lonely, regular guy. Are those your choices for what this music means to you? I hear that. I can hear that. I hear a lot of connotations. Yeah, I hear a lot in this too. Loneliness, I think, is unmistakably part of it. But you're right. There's also this kind of nostalgic element to it. You know, it feels a little player piano-y. There's a little bit of a stiffness to it that gives this sense of, like, round and round we go, same stuff, different day, mm. drudgery. It is very different from all of the world of sounds that we were confronted with in the opening sequence. It enforces a certain distance from it in the viewer. It now says, okay take a step back from all of these nitty-gritty close-ups of people talking with crosshairs over their mouths as we're looking through the sight of the shotgun mic and things like that. Oh, look, that's terrible. It's not hurting anyone. And then we take a step back, longer, more regular cinematic shots of a guy walking through the streets. I felt like this feel, this musical feel, was enforcing a certain distance. And as long as we hear this kind of piano playing, it kind of holds the audience at this specific distance. Please stay here as you're watching the movie. To me, it's sort of, it's not full-throatedly, but partially this sort of a balladeer effect. Mm, yeah. That it is going to tell the tale of this fellow. Right. This voice has entered that it's at a distance insofar as the character, the protagonist of this movie, is never a protagonist that the audience is with in the traditional sense. It's never like we wear him like a suit and go through the story experiencing what he experiences. We're always studying him and observing him. Right. Even as we're sympathetic to him to a point. And for me, it wasn't so much that it was keeping me at a distance that I might otherwise have closed, but... It did feel like it was introducing the official perspective, the, yes. the actual correct lens for looking at this guy. That's a good way of putting it. Which was sort of like a blues ballad of like, here's the story of Harry Call, he's this guy. But it's not completely committed to that. It's not mm -hmm. all the way there. It's sort of an echo of that. That is out of the past something that he might have been in a better organized dramatic world. Something that he might have been. Yeah, you're right. I like the idea of a balladeer because, yes, it's introducing this voice of a narrator, of a filmmaker. You know, it's the outside perspective of us looking at him. That's what I meant by, you know, like, stay here. This is where we're standing to watch what happens. 
I get that. Yes, I mostly agree. But the subtlety that I want to defend of the, and I'm not even sure they would agree with this, but it's the thing about my experience of it that I want to keep trying to articulate that sure. even that, even that aspect of what the music is doing, it's only doing as a memory of this function of the music. The music is nostalgic. It is old fashioned. As you said, a little like the player piano effect, like in Touch of Evil, where something sure. has come out of the past and that's why it's a little stiff. I thought this is around the time of, as it was called, the ragtime revival, when mm -hmm. in the late 60s and early 70s, the music of Scott Joplin, which had never been truly forgotten, but it had certainly gone so far out of fashion that no one really thought about it, or was played as kind of a fast comic music. But if you look at the old ragtime scores, they all say at the top of them, courtesy of Mr. Joplin, it says, you should never play ragtime fast. It yeah. is slow and it steady. It is never right to play ragtime fast. It's never correct to play ragtime fast. And it was in the late 60s and early 70s that some enthusiasts and you know musicologists started to revive playing ragtime as it was meant to be played. The classic movie reference is The Sting from, was it one year earlier? Sting came out in 73. It had just won the Oscar for Best Picture when this movie came out in 74. And I hadn't quite made that connection, but now that you say it, yeah, this is definitely, there's a line to be drawn between this piano piece and one of the piano pieces that's really important in The Sting, which is called Solace. That's exactly the one I thought of. Yeah, which isn't exactly a rag. I think it's not considered one of Joplin's rags, but it's... Yeah, I think he called it a Mexican serenade or something like that because it has kind of a yeah. slightly Latin rhythm in the bass. Yeah, and you hear this piece over lots of scenes of Robert Redford walking around town at night lonely by himself, looking up at the window of... Uh... So when he goes to the waitress's room is the main scene I associate it with. Yeah, it. exactly. So I think that part of the cultural moment of the ragtime revival yeah. was that a slow walking pace to a kind of sentimental but not overly expressive. Sentimental without being rhapsodic at all, just a sort of conversationally sentimental music that at that moment in time, I think there started to be a cultural sense of... I don't know if nostalgia is even the right word. It's sort of a precursor to retro as we know it now. Like this stuff from the beginning of the century had a special glow to it, a kind of an emotional cachet as something simpler and purer and thus sadder hmm. than how things are now. Honestly, I think that the slowness that Scott Joplin wanted was just because at the turn of the century, there was uh, pleasure and satisfaction and happiness to be had in things that moved at a steady and comfortable pace. I don't think that there was such a sense of kind of one tear looking back at a lost past. But in 1970, there was. And I think that there's a hint of that ragtime feeling in there. For sure. That who Harry Call is and what his story is, is a lost cause. Harry is past saving, and we can already hear it huh. as soon as the music starts, because the time of this music is at some point in the past. That's good. I was going to say, though, that, you know, I played this piece on the piano. You know, there's published score versions of this piece, and it's not too hard to play on the piano, but it was my instinct to play it significantly slower than it is in the movie. Like, after I played it myself, and then I watched the movie again, I was kind of surprised. Oh, this is actually faster than I would have remembered it. Yes, because those first two bars there, that is very much a ragtime rhythm. But then the next thing it starts to do is, all right, slightly different tradition. Yeah. And it's the mixing 
of these different elements within a steady, you know, the left hand just goes steadily the whole time, but different stuff happens above it. Shire said that he was kind of thinking of combining a simple bluesy riff in the right hand and, yeah, these accompaniment chords in the left hand that he was thinking of as reminiscent of Chopin. Yes, I thought that was a fascinating reference. The first thing my mind went to was the prelude in E minor, I think it is, right? Yeah. It's exactly that kind of thing that Shire was thinking of when he said that, that he wanted to right away get across two different things overlapped on top of each other, two different feelings in the music, because Harry is a kind of a wannabe jazz player. So that informs these sort of simplistic blues licks in the right hand. But also he is a very meticulous and, you know, kind of neat guy who wants everything to be just so, and that informs these very even quarter note Chopinistic chords in the left hand. And this is an example of what I mean about how he built it might not be what I got out of it, because to me, those chords in Chopin as here don't sound classical and composed and meticulous. The impression that that Chopin prelude has always made on me is that something softly unstoppable, a tragic feeling, a mm -hmm. quiet tragic feeling that like the emotion just carries. It's just a long singing line and it's talking and it's saying what it's saying. And it's by its very ease that you're stuck with it. There's no other thing to be said to steer you out of the emotional sinking that this progression is sinking bit by bit by bit it never makes a big move, but each of them, uh, you yeah. feel it and you feel the inevitability and yeah. the tragic momentum of this thing. It's that the momentum is so slow that makes it so unstoppable. And so there's something like that going on here. I don't hear that as like, oh, we've entered the world of classical no, music no, where no. everything is perfect. It's quite the opposite. You're right. You're right. And that sense of sinking is so important. He does that in a few different bits of material. This opening track, yeah, has this kind of sinking bass note as we go along. This other material that is associated with Terry Garr's character, Amy, has an even slower progression of sinking triads in the left hand that are just gonna step down and down again and down again. The same little simple figure in the right hand on top, you know, strikes dissonances, doesn't quite match with all of these sinking chords in the left hand. They're rubbing against each other, but nonetheless, the left hand is just gonna keep sinking down and down. Yeah, that's a very touching effect in that cue. Before we move on from the main theme, though, okay. the blues figure above that, a third influence that he mentioned, which I thought was fascinating, he said that there had been some radio station he used to listen to, like a college radio station, oh, yeah. where the late-night DJ would uh, read poetry, I think he said. It was like a jazz program, and this was like a real jazz bow guy on the radio. Yeah, a very hip cat on the radio station would read poetry or do spoken word stuff and while he was doing this spoken word stuff he would doodle on the piano he would make little figures on the piano but just a tiny little figure repeated over and over like da 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 da
to just kind of cast a bluesy spell to enter the world of jazz. It's like such a, you know, a classic caricature of the beatnik club where someone says a poem and then someone else just hits the bongos a few times to keep you in the world of Mm -hmm. things aren't quite the normal world. This is the world of music and, you know, art. Art, yeah. And that these little jazz licks in being so limited and so repetitive they move things into a dimmer lighting. They just sort of a little hypnotic, mm-hmm. a little bit of, yeah, just mood lighting that isn't fully all the way to being a tune. No, it's not. It's very rudimentary. These five notes that go up and down all the time, those are simply the first five notes of what you might be taught is the blues scale. Like if you're going to improvise jazz or blues, you know, these are the notes to play around with. Here's the scale. And this is just like somebody, you know, after one day of instruction in playing the blues, this is what he's figured out how to do. Just go up and down the scale. I mean, it's it's a little scale fragment that is super familiar from any number of other tunes because it's just such a rudimentary little bit. Like, you know, take five goes around up and down the same little bit of the scale. Can you think of any uh, <laughs> listeners write in? <laughs> yeah. I think Shire said that he came to a lot of this material based on improvisation himself that he did at the piano. I mean, the the score kind of intentionally has a bit of a flavor of an improvisation, but it's really not. It's very intentionally chosen all of these little simple fragments to run together. Yeah, the process here, this was also interesting to read, before the movie was shot, Coppola asked Shire to write piano pieces that could be used to construct the score out of. And he actually gave him prospective titles of little pieces he should write that were about Harry's life, but they weren't for scenes per se. Yeah, they were given titles like various things that could happen to Harry. What would it sound like? Write me a piano piece just as an exercise whose title is something like Harry gets run over by a cab, which doesn't happen in the movie at all. Or write me a piece after the title, how Harry is and then how Harry wants to be. These kind of evocative titles, Shire compared it to method acting prompts that Coppola was directing him like he might direct an actor. So he wrote these pieces and Coppola picked out one of them, which I guess is this main theme that we hear when he's walking at the beginning and said, yes, that'll be the theme for the movie. And then Gene Hackman got to hear that piece and it was heard on set and they knew it. Yeah. But I've seen it represented in some places that the score was thus entirely written before the movie was made. And that I don't think is the case because there are also, I saw careful spotting notes for the exact edited version of the movie. Yes. I think Shire then went with these materials that had been kind of laid out in advance and carefully pieced together cues exactly for these scenes. And then Walter Murch even further edited them and tweaked them to match the movie. Yeah, it was a continuing dialogue between Shire and Coppola and Murch. I mean, I think this is a funny story about the onset of this process of scoring this film, that this is like a big break for David Shire to get to score a Francis Ford Coppola film, even though, or perhaps because, at the time, Coppola was his brother-in-law. 
Francis Ford Coppola's sister is Talia Shire, who had married composer-musician David Shire in 1970. So imagine, you know, you marry a woman, she's got a brother who's a filmmaker, oh, that's interesting, and then a couple years later, turns out that guy makes The Godfather, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> and then he comes to you and says, now I want you to score my next movie, Shire was, you know, turning backflips in his head. Wow, this is going to be my big break. I'm going to get to write for a big orchestra. This is a big prestige production for Paramount. It's got a big star, big director. And now I'm going to get to really flex my muscles and show my stuff. And they're going to give me a big budget to record a big orchestra. And then Coppola comes to him and says, oh, I was thinking maybe just a solo piano. And Shire was crestfallen and tried to hide it. He said, okay, all right, fine. But he was he couldn't believe that he wasn't going to get to ultimately expand what he wrote on the piano into, you know, bigger orchestration, get some strings in there. But then he came to understand the efficacy of it. And, you know, looking back on it from later on, he said, as it turned out, I got more work after all from the conversation than from anything else I've done. But I just thought it was funny that uh, <laughs> he kind of had this bait and switch pulled on him. Well, it wasn't a bait and switch. It was just well in his head. The anticipation. He had made one for himself in his he head. He baited himself. Yeah. Yeah. But he has said, like everyone would say, this was the right decision that was made. Yes. For this. Yes. Not his decision, Francis Ford Coppola's decision. But I agree with everybody <laughs> saying that it was the right decision. But I still want to register my sympathies with David Shire coming to this project. Something else I want to try to represent honestly about my response to this is that a lot of the differing material, and there are several different pieces of recurring material, most of that disappeared into my subconscious. Mm -hmm. My main impression of this score was of unity, that it was all coming from that piano and that pianist. You actually slightly glossed over the way that the first cue starts. You said the conversation ends and then he goes home and we hear this music. Uh -huh. There's actually some overlap. The very first thing we hear from the piano is this improvisatory, non-metered sounding eerie music on the tail end, on the very last shot of the two subjects of the eavesdropping where the woman of this couple leans in and gives a kiss to the man of this couple, which is a shot we'll see several times echoing in Harry's head. The piano seems to be entering, as we said, that kind of late-night radio world of ah, a few sounds, a few notes. It's a sense of mystery, this material. This is recurring material. And then it drifts into the theme as Harry walks home. And it's that sense that this pianist who is observing and aware of everything in the story, this sound of a piano, is the room in which this movie all takes place. Instead of seeming like a lot of different puzzle pieces on an editor's table, it now is all happening in a space. And there's such a sense of spatiality to these recordings. Mm which apparently Shire would send demos of his cues to Coppola on, uh, you know, using his microphone that he had at home and his piano that he had at home. And then he went to a studio and recorded them all professionally on a big piano in a professional studio. He was scoring Stage M at Paramount, and he played on that grand piano, and I have played that piano. Well, that would be even more exciting if we were hearing that grand piano. That's right. It's not... <laughs> but we aren't. Yeah. Because Coppola went with the lower fidelity, more homey-sounding demos. Right.
give such a sense of no occasion, no institution, nothing special is happening. Almost that same effect you get from source music of this just started happening in the room we're in. Yeah. But as soon as the piano starts playing, my mind lights up with, oh, what room am I in? Whose company am I in here? And Merch is very careful. He very rarely takes the ambient sound away. This cue plays and you hear the sounds of the city, you hear the sounds of him opening the door, and you hear the hiss of the recording with the piano, and it feels like... Right. Yeah, this kind of found object, found art feeling was important to Coppola. He got used to it from the demos and didn't want to clean it up, and I think it was right. To me, it's almost like wherever that sound of that piano is coming from, that's where I really am, and the rest of this I might... Yeah. You know, close my eyes and I'm hallucinating this, which is something that happens in the movie. Yeah, please stand here to watch the movie. So when it goes to the Terry Gar scene, there's entirely different music for that sequence. And when it came time to look into the score more closely, yes, of course, that's different music, that's a second theme, mm -hmm. and yes, I was aware of that, but I wasn't really fully consciously aware of it because Agreed. the impression is so strong of the continuity of that voice and the sense that that pianist will play whatever he needs to play to capture the moment. And in fact, the spotting is so lovely and careful. In that scene in particular, the spotting is very lovely, and I think that's really the only scene that gets such attentive spotting in that way. But to what you were saying about how it feels continuous, it is continuous in that there are little cells of material that this pianist has in his bag of tricks and he will kind of mix and match them. Like here's this blues lick going up and down on top of yeah, these simple accompaniment chords in the left hand with a descending bass line. Now for this whole sequence with Amy, Terry Gar's character. There's a totally new thing happening in the left hand. It's in a different key. It has a different meter, a different feel, and it's different chords. A very striking, evocative series of chords that gets different stuff on top of it. But then, after the scene, He's on a bus, or I guess maybe it's a trolley car in San Francisco, and we hear now this left hand from the Amy material, but we hear a little bit of the same bluesy licks from Harry's material earlier. Mixed and matched, they're all kind of part of the same. Yeah, absolutely, it felt to me as I was watching too that this is all the same stuff. And. I appreciate now that I've looked at it that actually each choice is thoughtful. In the course of that scene, when it's at the end of the scene as she starts to say, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to see you ever again. Yeah, but the term she uses is wait for you. And then he uses that term again. He yeah. says, if you were a girl who was waiting for someone. Is that, what, what kind of arrangement is this? It, it, it didn't want to think about it too hard. It's a little creepy. But I don't think I'm going to wait for you anymore. He's paying her rent, and then he just comes into the apartment whenever he likes, and that's the, that's the relationship. It's a dream relationship, and I found this very touching, actually. On the commentary track, Coppola says that he used to have a recurring dream of making his way to some sort of run-down area far away from where he usually spends his time, a remote, decrepit place 
and that he would go into some room and there was a woman who had been waiting for him there and that there was this sense of sadness and that he had not taken care enough with this as he said some aspect of himself that had been relegated to this place and he said he found this dream so moving and evocative that he put it in the movie and he said after he made the movie with this scene in it he would sometimes go to such a place in his dream but there was never a woman there again what a touching story and i do think that yes as you say on the surface what's going on here doesn't quite make enough sense or it's strangely creepy but i think that some of that idea that a dream psychology needs to apply to this (laughs) does come across in the filmmaking and it does come across in this music i thought that the cue when he arrives there which is this music that we hear a few times it puts emphasis on this twinkling figure I find that so touching because it would be hard to say what it meant outside of the dream psychology, outside of a dream sense of what's going on. But in the dream, mm, it really feels right to me, very moving. It's pulling the strings in my head that match the ones in Coppola's head. And I don't know how much talking there was back and forth between him and Shire about what to do there. I really tried to figure out what are the words for what this twinkling figure does. It was very hard to find a name for that effect, but it's strong for me. Twinkle is right, it's a shimmer. But I don't just mean texturally, I mean, what does it correspond to, what does it mean? It's something like that in the dream that this scene is a staging of, you go to that neglected place where there's a neglected person who wants to give you love and you haven't been open to it or something, that this is some inner depth that it still has a wholeness and a beauty to it. It's like an underground lake that's shimmering. Mm. That's what's so sad about it, that it is pretty and it's nice and there is this neglected pretty thing within Harry or in this relationship that he hasn't really put himself into properly. And so something about that sparkle being like an effect of beauty that this scene is him kind of touching down on in the way that he can now but it's not good enough he's never going to hear any more than that twinkle it's just a twinkle is left (laughs) something like that something very melancholy about that and i love it every time i see it i agree it is beautiful and that's nice that it's something pretty that you're moving past you know there's a sense of these chords are going to keep going around this little circle yeah i like when you said it was an underground lake. I mean, there's definitely a feeling like the left hand is the ground and then on top of it is just some moving around, just some restlessness that isn't fully appreciating (laughs) the ground that it's on. Something like that. Also, those left hand chords. Yeah. Ooh, that's nice. It's just kind of a blues thing, kind of what you would hear in a boogie woogie, just going up and down, except when it gets to the top note, it's got the lower note of those two notes is flatted. It's a flat five uh-huh. instead of a normal five. You know, uh, since you mentioned those chords, I wondered if you thought the same thing that I did about where we've heard those chords recently. <laughs> I saw someone on YouTube saying it, and then I thought, yep, that's true. <laughs> what, what did the person on YouTube say? The person on YouTube said, I wonder if this was an inspiration for the theme from Severance. It's gotta be, right? It has to be. A, like, they must have been tempted with this for Severance because it's in the same key and it's going up and down the same chords except it flips the order of two of them. But similarly, again in Severance, it also has this like kind of half bluesy line where there are you know some angular notes that don't quite fit in exactly to the chords. 
moving up and down and it sounded I kept thinking of Severance in and out as I was watching the movie it must be an influence I would normally say just because these have the same note in them or the same chord doesn't mean that there's a line to be drawn there but the fact that the use in Severance the recent uh, Apple TV series with Adam Scott at a very weird job that involves his brain being divided in two the use there is related to what I was just trying to articulate. It is. Something about a kind of neglected inner part of yourself that's not getting the affection that it deserves, Mm -hmm. and it's still there, but it's cut off. That's exactly what that show is about. Yeah. And somehow they carried over the same expressive value of that flatted note. Well, that must be why they tempted with this, which I'm (laughs) confident enough to go on the record here as saying that I think they did. Maybe so, although there it's quite explicit, whereas here, to hear me talk, it seems like it must be what the theme of the movie is, but you could, you could indeed just watch this as a scene about the guy, and he's not even nice enough to his mistress, and now he's cutting himself off from everyone, and watch it literally, and not have it be a dream, but there is something dreamy in the editing, in the shooting, in the whole movie, and I had already thought it seemed sort of dreamlike, and it felt confirming when Coppola said, hey, this is basically a staging of a dream I used to have. Wow. But then, like we were saying, it does have this very lovely, very closely spotted relationship to this one moment in this scene that, you know, is sort of like a node of reality in the dream. When he pauses at the door? Yeah. Yeah. When she says the line, I don't want to wait for you anymore, she's breaking up with him because he won't tell her anything about himself because he's this, you know, secretive, neurotic guy. And he's pausing at the door... And he's kind of deciding, like, should I go back in? Is this over? Am I leaving? The figure slows down. I don't think I'm going to wait for you anymore. It waits for her line, and then we hear that twinkle figure you were talking about, kind of the answer to her line. And then it hangs this chord over this quick momentary indecision. Should I stay or should I go? Then he goes. When he moves, goes through the door, then the music moves again. Then we get back to this moving bluesy line. And then it carries over onto him on the trolley. Yeah, the trolley. I was going to call it a bus, but you're right. Trolley. San Francisco. I think it's a trolley because that explains why the lights blink on and off because of the, you know, getting the electricity from the cable overhead. Right. So when the lights go out, the image of Cindy Williams, the woman in the park kissing the man in the park, passes through his head in this moment of darkness and we hear a connection i don't know how truly composed and deliberate it was on shire's part but his material was all organically related enough that there is a connection for me that that flatted five associates with the spooky chords that we heard earlier which are like a diminished scale an octatonic scale sort of Mm -hmm. that also has that diminished fifth in it And so it starts to draw a connection that his sort of fascination with the woman that he was watching, that he hasn't really acknowledged to himself, somehow the mystery, the mystery of the conversation that the movie is all about, somehow overlays and relates to the mystery of his own kind of lost chances at connection and whatever Terry Garr has represented. 
and it, it happens so easily. Mm -hmm. The piano just keeps playing. This is all one thing, it says, over this very showy edit, essentially, where in the middle of one scene, there's a crossfade to this totally unrelated thing. You could say, well, that's a very ambitious, high kind of psychological edit, but the piano makes it completely just the most obvious and immediate thing. And then the piano again draws a line and connects this whole episode with the scene later in the movie where a bunch of people from the surveillance convention crowd back into Harry's studio, his shop, and are having a little impromptu party. And he goes off and has a private conversation with a woman who was giving a demonstration at the convention. And he has this very personal little reverie where he tells this woman about his relationship with Amy. And if you loved him, you were patient with him. And even though he didn't dare ever tell you anything about himself personally. We hear again a reprise of very similar music. It keeps that dream feeling in the air. And here it integrates with the theme from earlier that we might think of as the main theme or the Harry theme somewhat. Right. Would you go back to him? Yeah, more mixing and matching around these elements that make it feel like it's all part of the same voice. But the kind of analyzing you could do, you could say, okay, it's the love theme, the Amy theme, while he's talking and thinking about that relationship. And then it's the main theme, the loneliness theme, the hairy theme, as the camera pulls back and we see that he's not actually in such a relationship. He's in this kind of surreal late night party situation, all alone with these thoughts. So those things make sense. It's been spotted. It's careful. But the experience for the viewer, for me, is that everything is just flowing the way it must. And that's like the greatest compliment that I can give to it, that the work it's doing is invisible. It's just invisible to me. It is. I totally am with you. I had the same experience. It felt... Like, what else could it play? Of course it's playing this. Of course. Yes, it gives you this feeling of it must be so. And I think that's part of the effect that happens later in the scene when one of the other people at this party is this like obnoxious rival surveillance guy who's trying to needle Harry and to like play a prank and to show off to Harry haha look I can I can bug the bugger as I think somebody at the party says he plants a hidden microphone in a pen that he puts in Harry's jacket pocket and it turns out that he has been recording this conversation that Harry's been having with this woman. Even though he didn't dare ever tell you anything about himself personally. And he plays it back again for him to hear. Ha ha, I recorded you. And so we hear this conversation again, but now without the music under it. And that seemed somehow telling to me, and he reacts to it, gets really angry at it. I think you better turn it off and get out. And that somehow feels like it's part it's of the violation yeah. that he's made to listen to this kind of dreamy, very, very personal conversation without the music that attended it in his head in our appreciation of it. He's particularly upset that that got stripped away from him. Yeah, that's a great observation. What is more humiliating, what's more hostile than to have your music denied? Yeah. You don't have any music. You're just saying these words. That's very rough on him. Yeah, exactly. 
So this scene transitions into a literal dream sequence in the movie where there is actually a dream. And I think I also read that Coppola like put more personal things from his own life into the stuff that Harry says in this dream. Maybe so. It's a very unusual set of things that he says. Yeah. I was very sick when I was a boy. I was paralyzed in my left arm and my left leg. Uh, I couldn't walk for six months. This is a showcase for some of the electronic manipulation that is also very important to the score, especially mother, towards the, the latter parts of the movie. My mother used to lower me to, into uh, a hot bath. Was, As you said, terrible. we're introduced to the idea of the relationship of noise to this story at the very beginning, yeah. when you weren't sure if it was your stereo, because one of the first things we hear is the distorted sound that this shotgun microphone from all the way on top of a building can't quite pick up the conversation and it just hears electronic distortion, processed sound. Right. So we understand that his world is a world in which a sound that you can't quite hear is going to be a heavily distorted, electronically distorted sound. So our, our ears are used to the palette being part of this movie, but yes, starting around in the middle, it starts to infect the piano itself and it does start in that dream sequence. So part of the distortion that's going on here is that they're using yet another early synthesizer that we get to add into our little menagerie that we've been collecting on this show of early synthesizers that show up in these scores. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is done on something called the ARP 2400. It's just the initials of the guy who made it, ARP. I forget what his name is. Alan Robert Perlman. Ooh. Yeah, this was a company, 1969 to 1981. They were popular as high-end, high-sound quality synthesizers in the 70s, and I'm sure they're desirable collector's items now. And this is mostly Murch's doing. He brought it into the mixing room and played Shire's piano tracks through it, distorting it in different ways. This is part of why Shire has said that it's hard to tell where his score ends and Murch's sound work begins. On the soundtrack that was released, they actually included the distorted and pre-distorted versions of some of these tracks. So you can hear Shire just kind of banging yeah. some dissonances. And then you can hear them put through whatever Murch saw fit to put them through. There's one cue where uh, Harry's trying to get into a building to see somebody and a couple of tough guys physically prevent him from doing that, where there's two different layers of different piano things that have different amounts of distortion, you know, layered on top of each other. I'm afraid you'll have to leave now. Yeah, and I think that layering is also Murch's doing. So this way of distorting the piano, I mean, it's a very effective way of demonstrating Harry's mind getting unstuck and disordered and coming apart at the seams. There's so many different ways that both Shire and Merch together have found to kind of devolve what was there. I just want to say, you know who the security guard on the stairs who pushes him down is? Oh, no, who? It's his brother, Richard Hackman. Oh, well, uh, somehow I missed that, but I knew that his brother Richard Hackman is also also plays the part of the priest in the confessional booth that he visits in the middle of the movie. Who is essentially unseen, right? Right, but you can kind of see a little bit of his profile through the uh, confession screen thing. Anyway, I was actually about to say that this scene of his going to the confession in the church is an interesting way that Shire takes the earlier material and 
devolves it and pulls it apart and kind of isolates different elements of it. Instead of having this kind of ragtime lick on top of the regular chords in the left hand that have a descending line through them, instead now it's on top of just one single note repeating. And it's an odd meter. It's not this regular, almost waltz-like three meter that it was before. It's, I think it's in seven or nine here. I think it's nine, yeah. And now that raggy lick on top, it kind of has a different relationship to the notes, whereas the first time we hear it, it starts on that blue note, and resolves to a note in the next chord that it changes to. This time it starts above the blue note and then goes down and lands on the blue note, the kind of dissonant note there. Now it's gonna keep stepping down and the chord isn't changing, it's just this one note repeating underneath it. That was a very effective to me way of having it be the same material, but having a very different feel. But it's another manifestation of the sinking feeling yeah. as sort of an essence of the score. And then the repeated note itself becomes essentially the material that is the nightmare material in the, yeah. in the dream and in the Hitchcockian nightmare sequence late in the movie when he thinks everything's fine, but then he flushes the toilet and there's screaming and there's banging, that repeated note banging. Yeah, and let's talk about the screaming, too. We actually hear a woman scream. And it is immediately sort of picked up and melded into the ARP synthesizer screaming. That's what Shire wrote, actually, is to you know, make the ARP scream. You can hear this kind of one thing becomes another thing. The human scream becomes this machine scream. Things are layered on top of each other and passing from one to the next, resonating with all those kinds of layering and interpretive ambiguities of the whole movie long. And the effect of all of this is to make Harry's investigation, the mystery, the thriller, insofar as this movie is a thriller, has to do not just with figuring out what the conversation that he recorded was about, but with figuring out how his world even works, what anything is. Hmm. His confusion extends even to the kind of editorial texture of his world. Like when the bloody hand appears and shocks everyone, okay, something scary is going on. Then there are a couple shots of him kind of freaking out, traumatized, and they are crossfaded in a somewhat surrealistic way. Time passes, you don't know how much time has passed. Was this real? The music's being on a spectrum with sound effects, with processed sound, with synthesized sound, creates a surrealistic framework in which nothing is certain. Yeah, yeah. And then in that same sequence, he wakes up after having fallen asleep in his sort of fit of peak about what's going on. And there is a cartoon playing on the TV in the hotel room. Yeah, let's get into it, John. Let's talk all about this. I definitely dug up the details on this. Okay, well, this is an episode of the Flintstones that Shire has written original score that plays on top of that is supposed to sound like cartoon music. But 
it is playing at a level against the dialogue in the cartoon. Fred Flintstone is talking about whatever and- He's talking about how Pebbles is about to be born. It's the episode where Wilma gives birth to Pebbles. Okay, but that episode, I bet does not have this like goofy doop-a-doop-a-doop cartoon music just slathered over the dialogue. That's not how these cartoons worked. It is like this kind of surreal collage. Like it's part of this pull away from objective reality that's going on in his head. It makes me happy to know that you liked this movie enough to give it credit for everything, essentially, which is what, what I've been getting from you. I, yes, I guess I did. You think pretty much anything in it might as well signify it probably does because it's that kind of movie. I think that reflects so well on Coppola and Murch's sure, work. Sure, I'll take that. The movie deserves that kind of respect. Yeah. In this case, my take was, okay. <laughs> I think that they somehow talked themselves into that they had the rights to play Fred's voice and a little bit of the video, but that they did not have the rights to the music. And so he wrote approximate sound-alike music that they could use to drown out the actual music. I just don't think that there was actually music playing. I'm certainly not at that level. Well, John, well, I can play you the actual clip because I found it. (laughs) And guess what music is playing? Uh-uh. Music that sounds huh? kind of like this, so I bet he Careful. heard it. So there actually is music fast. under that dial? Watch out for the bump. Will you cut that out? Yep, there's music pretty much continuously like on the Flintstones from a library of Flintstones music by Hoyt Curtin. In fact, look what else I found. The isolated track. What fun. <laughs> First clip here starts with a piece of music that goes mm, tut, mm, tut, mm, tut, mm, tut, and that's what Shire has written. So I think it is just supposed to be copyright runaround sound alike music and it had to be loud because they had to drown out music that they couldn't separate from the dialogue. All right. It definitely, when I paid attention to it, it definitely felt to me like <laughs> no cartoon would actually have this relationship to music. This is a collage effect. Well, it's both because, yes, he comes out of his panic attack to sort of return to a strangely prosaic reality, but it's a reality that's as weird as cartoon music. So it's deliberately Hmm. noisy there. That's why it's chosen. Okay. But I I have... uh, I, I can point you to a lot of Flintstones music if you want to hear it, John. I, do I? It's pretty good. Some of it's pretty good. I, all right, fine. Very skilled. I bet he's very skilled. <laughs> Speaking of uh, being skillful at things, you know who isn't is Harry Call playing the tenor saxophone. My impression was Gene Hackman is actually playing at least some of this stuff. Yeah, he played it. He's not necessarily playing what you hear in the movie when you see the shot of him playing that sound in the movie, but he did play it. I think that they said that the end credits when he's playing is in fact him playing. And I want to give Gene Hackman, a non-saxophone player, oh, yeah. a lot of credit for being able to Absolutely. play a passably competent improvisation that I don't think I don't think it was deliberately designed to show a misunderstanding of the music I think it's just not at a professional level and that's as critical as I feel the need to be all right well it certainly is meant to be to the fore and for the audience to think about whether or not what he plays on the saxophone lines up with the music that it is on top of at the very end of the movie yeah
Well, the very end of the movie, I feel like it's the message of the whole thing, and it's such a mm-hmm. wonderful cinematic musical image to end on. It is. It's fantastic. Harry has gone through this ordeal. He's been through the ringer one way or another, and he is processing this by sitting in the corner of his apartment and playing a saxophone. But he's not playing over a record this time. In fact, I think he has taken apart his record player. (laughs) The music that he is playing over is the same music from the beginning of the movie on the piano. Can he hear this music as he's playing? Maybe a little? He's almost in key with it, but he's not quite tuned to the same tuning. The precise eye of the needle that is threaded about how synced up these two disparate musical streams are is exactly right. It's so satisfying. It's just on the edge of being plausible that they have something to do with each other. But then it kind of dodges and weaves its way in and out of alignment. It's so perfectly two different things that don't quite line up. after this whole movie about trying to make disparate recordings, disparate versions of events, different layers of reality, trying to get them all to gel together, the ending gesture is that here are two layers that just are not going to gel and that you can just hear them going independently. I hear your big take and how this plays into it. I like it because it's absolutely true that there's a layering and overlapping, but my big take, which is not incompatible with it, it's just a different angle. Mm-hmm. Harry clings to this idea that he is this saxophone and that this saxophone expresses his true self and that he has protected his true self against all the world. No one else ever hears him play the saxophone. He thinks that he goes into his sanctum and then is in touch with himself. But actually, he is not the saxophone. He is this piano. Yeah. We have known from the beginning that even his private self-knowledge that he has essentially sacrificed everything human about his life to maintain is misguided, is wrong, is a self-delusion. The juxtaposition at the end read so strongly as being about whether you're willing to face yourself and know yourself. Even pushed all the way to the limit here, this is as close as he can come to this thing that we have had direct access to the whole time. The story of Harry Call is this, what the balladeer has been telling us from the beginning, and the saxophone is the sound of denial or vanity or something. He just can't give up the idea that he is this cool dude with the saxophone. He won't let go. Does it have something to do with who he really is? As you say, yeah, something. It has something to do with it. It doesn't have nearly as much as it should. That's what I thought, and then I read in the thing that I guess we already quoted, Coppola said he needed to write a piece called How Harry Wants to See Himself and a piece called How Harry Actually Is. I think the piece How Harry Wants to See Himself ultimately was not assigned to Shire. It's when Harry plays the saxophone. Yeah, I think your take is absolutely compatible with mine because that's right. At the end, we're hearing two different pieces of music at the same time. And one of them is essentially how Harry is. And one of them is essentially how Harry wants to be. And there's a counterpoint. Shire in those liar notes said that it was really important to him in composing this score to 
be able to convey more than one thing at once, to convey not just a musical counterpoint, but an emotional counterpoint. He said that that applied to many aspects of the score. He mentioned the left hand against the right hand. They're doing different things. They have different feels and different sensibilities to them. Yeah, I just see that everywhere in this movie. Things are layered on top of each other, and either they do or they don't go together. And the degree to which they go together is your impression of them. And it's constantly changing, it's constantly under attack, under scrutiny. I want to give credit to, the, to this movie for making me think about all that. And the reason that I think this is a celebrated score, even though it is very short and just a piano and small seeming in so many ways, is that all of this complexity of connotation and the invitation to notice competing impulses it all is expressed and contained in almost the simplest possible way of expressing each thing mm -hmm. without baggage without any extraneous material it feels like a perfect counterpart to the slightly high-toned filmmaking there's no fat on it in terms of how it's done musically he kind of found the simplest way to get things across on just a piano and that's so refreshing and gratifying when the tradition in movie music on most of these episodes we talk about is to put a lot out there. They write things very quickly, and sometimes the best way to get a lot done when you have to do it quickly is to use very broad strokes and just, you know, call on a huge orchestra, and then, well, the brass will do something, and then the strings will do something. The usual sound of a movie score grants itself a lot more freedom so that it can get everything done that it needs to get done. And here, without ever sounding strained but also without ever sounding insufficient, he gets it done in a very simple, straightforward way. And yet it creates this movie that uh, no other movie is quite like this. It has a very interesting combination of artistic effects that it creates. And we didn't really talk about who David Shire is or where he came from, but he had mostly been working in theater, writing musicals mm -hmm. and songs for cabarets and musical theater style. wanted to work in film and had kind of worked his way through writing for TV westerns. This is from The Virginian and then a few minor movies and that's why this was a big break for him because he wanted to write for film. He went on from here to write scores in a variety of styles and he definitely has a breadth to his stylistic abilities. Also in our bucket, he also wrote the 12-tone funk score to The Taking of Pelham 123. And the kind of classical, traditional orchestra score to Return to Oz. For Walter Murch. For Walter Murch, right, who actually directed that. range. I first encountered David Shire's name as a music theater writer, mm -hmm. and he was significant to me because we had the score in my house when I was growing up of one of these review shows that he wrote, uh, Starting Here, Starting Now, and then the later one, Closer Than Ever, with lyricist... Maltby? With Maltby, exactly. Maltby and Shire. Yeah. And it had some numbers in it that were written out, very commercial-sounding, like jazzy Muzak 80s stuff Lots of girls with all these chords that I had never seen on a page before and, uh, I love that if you think I'm special, I'm it was a big deal to me to 
see, oh, this guy really knows what he's doing because he knows how to write this out. This song, Miss Bird, which has a very dated sound, but it's so pleasant to play on the piano. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I absolutely have experience in my time as a you know, musical theater cabaret pianist playing Maltby and Shire songs for people. And they're always like, the piano part is really well crafted, don't you think? Yeah, it's true. His style, I hear it even in some of his film scores, it has that theatrically direct quality that a theater pianist might choose to kind of, you know, come up with a single strong musical image and then that's the song. And this absolutely takes that tack. It sounds like, you know, this would be the song at the beginning of the musical of the conversation. This would be what he would play. And it's just exciting. It's just artistically exciting for me to see something that small Mm -hmm. go so far and carry the movie to such interesting places. Yeah, here, here. And, um, why a piano, I wanted to say. Is that a real question? Why a piano? I, you know, we read where Coppola was saying that uh, he wanted it to be simple and spare and lonely to go with this lonely character, for it to be him against the world. He wanted it to be a single voice. Yeah, and that's why a piano. But, mm-hmm. like, as a pianist, I feel pretty strongly that a piano is the best instrument. I mean, come on, right? You can play all these different notes on it. It's like scandalous to me how few notes all these other instrumentalists have to play relative to how many notes I have to play on the piano. Well, the pros of a piano, definitely, that it can play, you know, almost as many notes at once as you could ever want. And the cons are it's a hammer hitting something, so you have a lot less expressive value in each individual note. And as you said, a live piano still has some element of that player piano sound in it. Yeah. Kind of a machine has been harnessed by a person. That's right. That's right. And... So here, uh, indulge me this little flight of fancy, which is absolutely my own, you know, conspiracy theory for the paper I'm going to write later, Mm -hmm. that I do not attribute to Shire or Coppola here. But like I said, indulge me. I kept talking about how this movie is about overlapping things, like the three different horn players in that busking combo. And then that is echoed in the three tape players coalescing their streams together to make one unified thing. You know what else is three different things happening at the same time that coalesce to make one unified thing is a piano note. Because every piano note you said is a hammer hitting something. Well, it's hitting strings and it's hitting three strings for each note. That's what gives the piano its particular sound. It's impossible for those three strings to be tuned exactly, exactly, precisely to the same pitch. And so that very small amount of pitch fudging that you get with a piano note is part of its distinctive sound. And then in this movie, he was playing this piano on his out-of-tune upright that Coppola became enamored with. What does it mean for a piano to get out of tune? If you play a single note on an out-of-tune piano, how can one note be out of tune? It's because the three component strings that make up that note don't match each other. They are not coalescing. So I think maybe there's just a little something behind that that was such an important and evocative sound for Coppola is he wanted a little bit of that out-of-tune piano because that contains the sound of things that purports to be the same, coalescing, but not coalescing perfectly. Meh. Again, I'm very happy that this movie 
pushed you all the way to conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and I'll, if you have a numerological theory about it, I will listen to it. Not every note on a piano has three strings. The bass yeah, yeah, only, yeah. The most of them in the middle, and then in the middle they the do. lower note. You know, at the, the top and the bottom they don't. Yeah, because at the bottom the strings get really thick, so there's only two of them, and then at the very, very bottom is only one. But yes, most of the notes in the middle. The notes that he's playing on the piano for most of the time on these pieces have three strings for each of the notes. Mm-hmm. Just like the three tay players and the three horn players and three other things. I told you it was a stretch, it was a flight of fancy, and I asked you to indulge me in it. I, I did. I did. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. I don't know if you could hear my indulgence, but it was <laughs> loud and clear for me. You were being totally indulged. Thank you. As for why a piano, I did think... I think I said earlier, it has various connotations. It has, for me, for example, the connotation of a bar room, that this is someone's last drinks they're having while someone is playing slowly and quietly on the piano. And that did come across for me sometimes that even if it's not playing the blues, these are Harry's blues. Harry's life is as sad as the last people hanging around at the bar Mm -hmm. when the piano sounds like this. But other connotations it has when it's playing that spooky octatonic stuff for the mystery, for the conversation, with these two major seconds next to each other, which is such a cool kind of, where are we? What's what here exactly kind of a sound. I love major seconds. You don't hear them so much in movies, but I I really like this little thing. That, to me, is a slight uh, evocation of French Impressionism, Debussy. Sure. And Debussy would write a thing like that. He would say that it was about, like, you know, nature, rain, the wind in the orchards, whatever. The mystery of the natural world rather than some kind of mystery story mystery. And I like that the mystery in this movie is, like with Debussy, it's like the mystery of nature is a mystery you can live with. It could be comfortable. You're off balance, but maybe one is never balanced because this is just how the world is. This gently, suggestively mysterious place. And that for me goes with the instrument. I think if I heard those things, if I heard, you know, two clarinets playing those major seconds, it wouldn't Mm -hmm. connote that at all. It's something about the ringing and, yeah, the history of the instrument. Sure. Well, as must have been quite evident to you, I have now scraped the bottom of the barrel of things that I had to say. (laughs) So quick, let's get another movie in front of me to say things about. Before you destroy that barrel. Yeah. Got to fill the barrel with new stuff. Okay, I think it's your turn to do the honors. All right. I have here the lottery ball machine that has balls in it bouncing around to represent the vote that our patrons made on Patreon, weighted according to how much they want certain things and other things. And uh, I don't know if I should say, there are quite a few of these balls that pertain to a certain thing. Hmm. Is it a movie score? It is a movie score that I think a lot of people would consider worth talking about, but there's no guarantee that it comes up. Okay, here we go. I wonder how the sound of my hand reaching in will layer and gel or not gel against the sound of all of these balls clattering uh, around. You always try and tie it in, but there is no sound of your hand reaching in. It's just the same stock sound of balls every time. Well, it's just in the music, I assume. Oh, you mean the musical score that accompanies your hand reaching into the balls? Yes, well, it's obviously this disturbing, distorted piano. All right. I've got one. I'm going to look at it now, and let's see. Okay, well, look. This is the vicissitude of lottery drawing. It's not the 500-pound gorilla, but it is a great pick. I'm actually really excited about this. 
We are going to talk about Miklos Roja's score to the 1944 noir classic Double Indemnity. I am really looking forward to this. It is about time we got some more Roja on this show, and his film noir stuff is so tasty. Yeah, it's sort of crazy that we're this deep into the show, and we've only done one Miklos Roja, and he had several different personalities that we haven't even touched on, so that's a great choice. Have we done a classic noir? No, I don't think we have. I mean, we've done, you know, people call Chinatown a neo-noir but, right, and Touch of Evil is kind of a sleaze noir 50s thing, which yeah. is a little bit different from this 1944 classic. Right. This is going to have a lot of shots of people with shadows of window blind slats over their face. Oh, there's going to be shadows on people's faces. You can bet on it. Yeah, it's a cool movie, and it's a cool score, and yeah, I'm psyched to talk about it, no doubt. All right, I'm excited for that. Great. I'm less excited for doing all five of the Oscar movies, but that's what we are currently doing and getting done as quickly as possible. So that is the next episode. <laughs> That's right. You have to wait for Oscar to have his say before... But we get to do this, but I'm looking forward to it as a prize for clambering through the Academy's choices. But, uh, you know, maybe it's not too much inside dope here to say that I feel a little bit better about this crop of Oscar nominees than I have in previous years. Is that giving away too much? No, it isn't. And I am the same. And this might actually be a great Oscars episode. Let's see if it is. <laughs> I hope it is. Yeah. Come back soon and find out. And thank you for coming back again to listen to us at all. We are the most grateful. Yeah, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can always reach us at scoresettlers at gmail.com. It helps us out if you want to write us a review uh, on the podcast app or wherever you can write us reviews. And as always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Patreon, where you'll also get to participate in the votes to narrow down the lottery candidates and hear bonus episodes and extras from the episodes and stuff like that. All right, Andy, I have, uh, as always, I have enjoyed this conversation with you. We'd have this conversation if we could. <laughs> We'd have this conversation if we could. Exactly. Exactly.